Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest is Dr. Ruth Faden, Director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Dr. Faden is an expert on biomedical ethics and health policy. Today we're going to be discussing the ethics of pandemic flu planning. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Faden. My pleasure. Uh, can you ask this very simple question? Why do we continue to manufacture 350 million doses of flu vaccine, which is about the same amount that we manufactured in 1998 when we first began to realize that there might be a flu vaccine shortage? I mean, why aren't we producing more seasonal influenza right. vaccines right. than we are now? It's a very uh, good question. It's, not, it's a little bit outside my area of expertise, so we might go on a bit. I can, I can try and answer it. Part of it is a capacity and market problem. We uh, need to make sure that there's a market for more seasonal influenza and therefore uh, an incentive structure for manufacturers of seasonal influenza vaccine to increase their capacity. There are two reasons to want to do that. One reason is because, in fact, from a public health standpoint, it just would be good, or so it's explained to me by my influenza expert colleagues, it just would be good to have more people in the world immunized against seasonal influenza because seasonal influenza is, in its own right, uh, a serious public health concern that produces a substantial burden of uh, ill health every year. The second reason why we'd like to see more seasonal influenza vaccine produced, however, has to do with building capacity down the road to be able to produce in very large numbers a tailored vaccine for a pandemic influenza should we ever be confronted with one. So you need to build capacity in order to be able to produce a whole lot of influenza vaccine against a pandemic strain an efficient way to do that is to ensure that you've got sufficient capacity just for seasonal influenza vaccine. Well, the shift then a little, do you think that we have met or have a plan in place to meet the possible avian flu pandemic that may take place? Well, the, the, the immediate answer has got to be obviously no uh, in terms of actually where we are. There's a difference between where we are in planning and where we are in implementing the plan. I don't think that anyone would argue that we're positioned Uh, to do anything other than uh, the most rudimentary kind of response if, God forbid, we were to have an influenza of a pandemic catastrophic character anytime soon. We don't have the vaccine capability down yet, and we certainly don't have the production capacity. So we've got two huge problems just on vaccines alone. The planning effort is fast and furious all over the world. Uh, World Health Organization Uh, leading health agencies in every country in the world have been devoting, some people think, a disproportionate amount of resources, scrambling, trying to figure out how best uh, to cope with the threat of of pandemic influenza. If we were to have, God forbid, a pandemic strain hit us anytime soon, though, uh, we'd be in trouble. I mean, just this year, 40 new countries have reported avian flu. There have been 250 deaths in 10 countries, 10 different countries. Right. And and all of this is is very worrisome. Plus, there has been uh, ever wider geographic area in which H5N1 and birds, avian disease outbreaks have occurred. So there's reason to be concerned that, in fact, the prospect of influenza of a pandemic nature, pandemic influenza actually emerging in the near future, there's reason to be concerned that that's the case. The question is, what can we do about it? And and how should we respond? And there are basically two trajectories. One trajectory looks at medical countermeasures, and the other trajectory looks at traditional public health responses. 
sort of backing all of that up is, is there any reasonable chance of being able to essentially extinguish or prevent a pandemic influenza by a rapid response to an outbreak of uh, sustained human-to-human transmission in some area of the world where we first start to see it? Do you think air travel is going to play a role in such an ev- if such an event happens? Air travel is just part of the scenario background against which all of the modelers are projecting what we're likely to experience. I mean, the fact that we have no way to think about the world except other than completely interconnected. The line we like to use is that infectious diseases know no borders. They totally don't. And they totally don't in part because people know no borders. And air travel is just a piece of it. There's no way to think that we can isolate ourselves out of being at risk for influenza of a pandemic nature. That just can't happen. That said, my understanding is if there's at least a small chance that with a very aggressive response to uh, initial outbreaks of sustained human-to-human transmission in isolated areas of the world, there's at least maybe a small chance of being able to sort of snuff out uh, the epidemic before it becomes a pandemic. Do you think the SARS was a wake-up call for global health? Yeah, SARS was clearly a wake-up call, and it was a wake-up call in multiple respects. It certainly underscored the fact that we make a mistake if we think about public health from the standpoint of the way in which we've traditionally thought about public health and, and the prevention of disease, which is from within the borders of a particular country. It, we could have the world's best Uh, pandemic influenza plan, and if the rest of the world doesn't, it's not going to help us all that much. Uh, So that SARS really underscored that. SARS also underscored all of the ethical challenges that a major epidemic, let alone a pandemic, poses for all of us. The uh, challenges are at the global scale in terms of how to distribute across the world Uh, the burdens of attempting to contain a pandemic through to the limited resources we have for combating a pandemic, to triage situations within countries in terms of who should have scarce hospital beds, do we privilege healthcare professionals before we privilege national security and fire and police, through to whether healthcare professionals, doctors and nurses have a higher obligation to their family members or to their uh, patients. Certainly, we have all were disturbed by the somewhat delayed reporting by, say, China in particular, in not responding to or reporting to the World Health Organization, SARS. The, there's a real ethical question there. Will countries respond for the, their own best interest and the world's best interest? Well, there are, there are very challenging questions about global obligations, international obligations, There are conventions that all the nations of the world, or pretty much all the nations of the world, have uh, signed, uh, public health schemes, basically, in which all countries have agreed to share promptly uh, information about the outbreak of uh, communicable diseases, especially target diseases, of which pandemic influenza is right at the top of the list. So countries have agreed and therefore have sort of formalized obligations to make this information available. Our best sense is that China is being more forthcoming with respect to pandemic influenza than with SARS and that China learned a lot as the world learned a lot in the SARS uh, experience. That said, there are real concerns about whether we are getting all the information we need to get from every part of the world as promptly as we can get it. It has to, however, be pointed out that... It's not easy for the world's poorest countries that are struggling under a tremendous existing burden 
of disease and ill health and early mortality to allocate resources to essentially disease surveillance programs that while of use to their own countries are of a particular use to the rest of us. So we're basically asking very poor countries to beef up their human and animal surveillance programs so that they can have early detection of cases of pneumonia, for example, and trying to discern whether the pneumonia is pneumonia or, in fact, a worrisome um, influenza experience so that we then can be prepared, all the rest of us, when, in fact, these very, very poor countries have huge burdens of disease that aren't in prospect. They're experiencing them right now. So partly, I guess, what I'm saying here, I'm not saying it, uh, maybe as plainly as I should, so I'll say it plainly now, is currently we are essentially placing the biggest burden of attempts to prevent the next pandemic on the shoulders of some of the world's poorest countries. And it's up to the rest of the world, in fact, to provide the resources so that these countries are not bearing an unfair burden even before the pandemic strikes. I'd like to just ask you this. Do you think that the United States as a country really thinks about health as far as their responsibilities to the global health situation? Well, it depends on who exactly we're talking about, Dr. Pickard. In terms of the American government, I mean, clearly our legislators and the president have made major commitments to global health initiatives in such areas, in particular as HIV-AIDS. There's also a very healthy amount of self-interest that I think many of our leaders recognize lies with trying to do something about uh, the incredible disparity in health and well-being between privileged countries and the poor countries of the world. There is a recognized association, for example, between poverty, poor health, and political instability. If we want to make a just a straightforward national security argument, for example, we are better off when other people in the world, other peoples in the world, have higher standards of living, including better health, uh, longer lifespans, and so on. There's also the recognition with respect to emerging infections that uh, this is one world and that we really can't isolate and protect the health of Americans from emerging infectious diseases like a pandemic influenza, for example, without attending to uh, the parts of the world where many of these infectious diseases first emerge, and they unfortunately are often in some of the world's poorest regions. So uh, there's a way in which we can tell a good story here and say that for self-interested reasons and also because Americans have a very keen sense of justice and are very charitably inclined uh, as a people, we are contributing to improving the health of people around the world. On the other hand, uh, you could also tell the story that we're not doing nearly as much as other wealthy countries are doing. If you look, for example, at the proportion of our uh, various measures of national wealth that goes to straight development efforts. We don't look all that good. And we, of course, also have uh, remarkable major American philanthropies that are absolutely transforming the landscape of global health, the Gates Foundation being the most prominent among them, where uh, it's possible that the Gates Foundation will itself have as much impact on improving global health as the World Health Organization and the United States and the rest of uh, the developed world combined. Do we think that we're getting the most bang for our buck when it comes to our investment in global health? This is a, a complicated question because we're not really sure, I think, what most Americans appreciate or understand about the role or contribution 
that America makes to improving global health. The surveys that I've seen regularly show Americans as saying that we're maybe not giving as much as we should to foreign aid or maybe our foreign aid contribution overall is to, to the world's welfare is pretty good. But then when you ask them what they think it is, they greatly exaggerate the amount of money that the United States actually gives. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that if you ask the American public if they have to choose between ensuring that all Americans have access to health insurance and improving life expectancy for people in sub-Saharan Africa, that they're going to pick the latter. Right? We have our own problems in the United States with respect to health and health disparities that also very much trouble the American public. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Ruth Faden, director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.